of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. Great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain thee. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will bring it to pass. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, correctly dividing the word of truth. Before we begin our study of God's Word this evening, let's make sure that we are prepared and if necessary, give everybody the option for silent prayer, for confession. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, ready to study God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity this evening to gather together as a body of believers to have fellowship around the teaching of your word, but we know that it is your word that nourishes our souls, it is your word that gives us that which we need to grow spiritually, the principles that that spell out what it means to have abundant life. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit will be able to think objectively about our lives and see how these things apply to our own thinking in our own lives, that we may apply these things clearly and wisely, that we may advance to spiritual maturity and glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, and we're down to verse 13. James chapter 2, and we are down to verse 13. What exactly is the relationship of faith and works in salvation and in the spiritual life? I think this is one of the most important questions facing the Christian evangelical community today, and sadly, most theologians, most pastors are getting the answers wrong. James addresses this issue in this passage, and this is one of the crucial battlefield passages in coming to an understanding of the answer to that question. What is the relationship of works to salvation? Are works really necessary? Now, the way that this is formulated, the answer to this question is formulated today, we can say there's basically two positions. Position number one is that justification is the result of faith alone. But we'll write it up here like this. Faith minus works. Faith alone and Christ alone. Second position, and really there are only two. The second one has some interesting nuances to it, very subtle changes, but it's the same position. Justification is faith plus works. Now, this second formula is manifested in two ways. One I call front-loading the gospel. It's right up front what those works are. This would be faith plus any number of things, faith plus giving, faith plus baptism, faith plus ritual, faith plus doing good. It's just right up there, right up front. If you want to be saved, then what you need to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sins. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and go to church. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized. And so there's this dual condition that's clearly expressed right up front. Now, it's really sad that we live in an era today when very few people, even nationally known evangelists, can get the gospel straight. The other day, in light of this uh, tragedy in Colorado, they had a memorial service on Saturday afternoon, and uh, Franklin Graham, the son of Billy Graham, and apparently the heir to his ministry, was giving the message He said that if you want to have an eternity in heaven, you need to repent of your sins and you need to invite Jesus into your life. And I thought, what a great opportunity to make sure the gospel was clear and how sad that he muddied the water up so terribly. But that's what happens. It's this unclear, fuzzy, nebulous, invite Jesus into your life, open your heart to God and Christ and you'll be saved. So his faith plus, the overt 
addition of something to the gospel. But there's a much more subtle form. And this is the idea, I call it faith, I, I call it backloading the gospel. It's, it's, they'll say it's faith alone. That's the way it's expressed. Faith alone. And the way we put it up here is faith, and then we'll put the plus works in parentheses. Because the way they will express it is this. They have a nice little catchy phrase and sounds good. It's while we are saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. Doesn't that sound good? While we are saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. And what they mean by that is that genuine, keyword, always look for adjectives. Because as we have seen in our study on the Gospel of John on Sunday morning, there is never an adjective in front of John's use of the word faith. It's always believe in Christ. He never says have genuine faith or true faith or saving faith. It's faith. The object is Jesus Christ. But what they do is they add this phrase and they say, if you have saving faith or genuine faith, then it will always result in works. Some kind of overt production that gives evidence and assurance that the faith that you have is saving faith. And if you look at your life and you don't see those works and you don't see that evidence, then perhaps that faith that you had when you said, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins, if you don't see those works, that evidence in your life, then maybe that faith that you had wasn't saving faith. Maybe it was just an academic faith. You, you had a head belief without a heart belief. And it sounds good and it preaches well and it's good rhetoric, but it's not biblical. Because the Bible never makes a distinction between a head faith and a heart faith. Because you can't believe with your heart. It's a physical pumping organ. And when the Word of God uses the word heart, cardia, and in the Hebrew lave, it refers to that innermost part of the thinking part of the soul, the cognitive function of the soul, the mentality of the soul. And it does not refer to emotion at all. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Well, what do you do in your heart? You think. So that's not emotion. That's the thinking part of the soul. So, they have all these little sayings, but the bottom line is, a lot of Christians, a lot of theologians, a lot of pastors just don't want to give people enough rope to hang themselves, and they're so afraid somebody's going to think they can get away with sin. They forget that God is omniscient and omnipresent, and there's no sin that you or I ever commit that God was not fully aware of billions and billions of eons ago. And that he made sure that when Jesus Christ went to the cross to die as a substitute for our sins, that he imputed every single sin we will ever commit to Jesus Christ on the cross. So those sins are paid for. But they think somehow people are going to take advantage of the grace of God. And they're so concerned with protecting the grace of God that they forget that God's power, omnipotent. And God is more than powerful enough to protect his own honor and his own grace. So this is the problem. We have uh, the expression of faith plus works, and it's either front-loading the gospel with overt works, or it's back-loading the gospel. And in this case, when you say that it must issue in, that genuine faith issues in works, then ultimately assurance of salvation is based upon having these works. Well, what happens if you think you were saved, you have genuine faith, and you go five or ten years, and then you decide something happens in your life and you go through some crisis or some suffering and you get mad at God and you turn your back on God and you live the rest of your life as an atheist. Well, then they would say you were never saved. So you can't really know that you're saved until you're almost dead because what happens if you turn your back on God and you don't really continue or persevere in their terminology, that you don't persevere in good works, then you didn't have saving faith. And the problem with that is there is no assurance of salvation and you can't know. And the scripture says this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. These are written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. Certain knowledge is promised by the scriptures that you can know that you have eternal life. So they place assurance not in the promise of God, but in the works of man and the fruit of man, and overt uh, morality usually. 
So this is the problem. Now when we ask this question, we come to passages like James chapter 2, we see that there seems to be a contradiction. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Notice that key phrase, not of works. Titus 3, 5 says it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, in Romans eleven six, Paul says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Look at Romans eleven six very carefully. He says, If grace, if you include works at all, then you destroy your concept of grace. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What he says is that when works are included, grace is nullified. Now, when we come to James chapter 2, and he says in verse 14, What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? The implication from the way he formulates the question in the Greek is, the answer is no, that faith cannot save him, because it doesn't have works. Is this a contradiction? Yes, it is. But, and we must be willing to say that it clearly is a contradiction. Paul says works are excluded, and James seems to say that works are included. So, since the Scripture is the Word of God and God doesn't contradict Himself, maybe we don't understand the terminology that James uses correctly. So, we must begin when we come to this passage by carefully analyzing the context of these statements to make sure that when Paul says that we are by, saved by faith minus works, and James says that we are saved by faith plus works, that they both mean the same thing when they use the word saved. So we can see right now that as we analyze this passage, we're going to have to do some word studies. We're going to have to look at what Paul and James mean by the word saved. We're going to have to understand what James means by dead faith. And to that we must add an understanding of what do they mean by works? What exactly does that phrase mean, works? And before we're done, we're going to see that we have to understand what the word justification means. So not only that does this passage have a history of controversy in terms of its fundamental interpretation, but just to make sure we're on our toes and to keep things interesting and to make sure none of you get bored... Right in the middle of this passage, there's a textual problem. Now, I don't know if you know much about textual criticism and textual problems, but it gets a little bit dicey at times, and there aren't too many people who are really good textual critics, and I don't want to get bogged down in too many of the details, but right in the middle of this, we're going to have to take apart and go into a little history lesson so that we understand why there are textual problems that why it does not challenge or should not cause us to doubt the veracity and clarity of God's Word, how these things came about, and why I'm going to make the decisions I'm going to make when we get to that textual problem. Now, just a little review of the context. Paul, uh, or James has been addressing these readers of his because of certain sin in their life. They've, been, they've encountered a test and as we have seen, it is the test that God brings into our lives in order to challenge us to trust Him and to use problem-solving devices and stress busters so that we can advance towards spiritual maturity. After the point of salvation, we will encounter various tests of doctrine, and here is the flow chart we've been using. We can exercise either positive volition or negative volition at the point of that test of doctrine. And a test of doctrine is simply any opportunity we have to either apply the word or not apply the word. To either use human viewpoint to solve the situation or, or use divine viewpoint and claim a promise or apply a doctrine or utilize personal love for God the Father or impersonal love for all mankind. Whatever it may be, the test gives us the opportunity to apply the word or not. If we apply the word, we produce divine good, we begin to develop capacity for life and experience the fullness of life that God promises us, and we produce evidence that the will of God is good and perfect. We develop steadfast endurance and we advance to the adult spiritual life. If, on the other hand, we are negative, 
then we produce sin from the sin nature and human good from the sin nature. The Bible calls this temporal death as opposed to life. Now, this, this, uh, 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 these opposites here are important for understanding this passage that we have before us. It develops weakness, spiritual weakness, and emotional instability in our lives. Spiritual regression, it hardens the heart. And we continue in this cycle under the sin nature control. When we die and we're face to face with the Lord, we go to the judgment seat of Christ. Those who spend maximum amount of time in this cycle up here under the filling of the Holy Spirit, advancing to spiritual maturity, will receive rewards and an inheritance. Those who spend most of their time down in this cycle under sin nature control will produce wood, hay, and straw. They will lose rewards and experience temporary shame at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this is the blueprint for the plan of God for our lives. Phase one, salvation. This is phase two, and this is phase three. Now, what's happened with these readers is they're failing the test of persecution. It's people test advance them to spiritual maturity. They're coming under persecution by the rich, the wealthy in their area, wherever that was. And these wealthy people have rejected, the, rejected doctrine, rejected the gospel, and they're dragging believers into court. In the midst of this context, they are responding to that rejection test by uh, trying to curry favor with the very people who are hostile to them and rejecting them. And not only have they reversed the poles of their affection so that they are trying to curry favor with those who are persecuting them, they are rejecting and treating poorly and contemptuously the poor people who are coming into the congregation who smell bad and dress bad, but they love the Lord and are advancing to doctrine. So they, under reversionism, they have reversed the poles of their affection, and they are treating with respect those who abuse them, and they are trying to curry favor with them and showing personal favoritism to them, and they are rejecting and treating contemptuously fellow believers who just are not personally attractive to them. And so James confronts them with their failure to apply impersonal love in the midst of this particular test. Now, all of this is important because it goes back to the fact that he challenged them in verse 19, excuse me, in verse 21, to put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. That's rebound. 1 John 1, 9, confession of sin. And in humility receive the word implanted. They've been hearers of the word. That means they're accumulating a lot of academic knowledge. This is the illustration we've been using to show the grace learning spiral the grace process God's provided for us. There are two spheres of the mentality of the soul. The Bible refers to one is the noose, the mind, and then the inner sphere, the very heart of our thinking, the core of our thinking, is the cardia. Pastor, teacher, communicates doctrine. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit converts that to pneumaticos doctrine, makes it understandable to us. We have to exercise positive volition at that point, to think about it and to understand it. Just because the Holy Spirit makes it understandable to us doesn't mean we understand it passively. We still have to think about it. We have to comprehend it. We have to, the Old Testament uses the term meditate on it. We have to think about it. The reason a lot of people uh, get caught up and fail in their Christian life is they don't think about it. They just think that because they can regurgitate what the pastor has said and they can say the same words and repeat it back that they've understood it. But that just because you can say the words and talk the talk and repeat the verbiage doesn't mean you understand the concepts. So we have to exercise positive volition, meditate on it, and it becomes gnosis when we understand it. Once we understand it, then the choice is, again, positive volition, the choice is whether or not we believe it. When we believe it, the Holy Spirit converts it into epinosis doctrine in the innermost part of the soul, the, card, or the thinking part of the soul, the cardia, and there it's applicational doctrine. It doesn't automatically apply. Once again, we have to use positive volition in order to apply it in the test. Hearing is this process all the way down to it becoming epinosis. Application is doing. Now, some people just stop right out here in the blue circle, and it stays academic knowledge. And that's what's happening here. They're not confessing their sin. So they don't have the filling of the Holy Spirit and they're just learning a lot of doctrine and they're becoming hearers only 
And James says you're self-deluded unless you're becoming an applier of the Word. If all you're doing is accumulating a lot of doctrine and think that because you have doctrinal notebooks full of great things and you know all about the Bible, if you confuse that with spiritual maturity, you're deluding yourself. And the problem here is that they are not applying the Word. So there's no evidence. There's no real life there is what James is going to say. Now that's all background. And it begin, for them it was to begin with judging themselves. And this is where we find ourselves. We stopped last time at the end of 12. And James is saying you need to apply impersonal love. And if you don't, you're going to be judged by the perfect law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. And this is the judgment of God in terms of divine discipline. And we saw last time in our study that this word that's used here, both the noun chrysis for judgment and the verb, are used in 1 Corinthians 11.31. They're never used in the judgment seat of Christ. So this is referring to our own personal self-judgment in confession of sin, 1 John 1.9. And in 1 Corinthians 11.31, Paul says, but if we judged ourselves, there's the word chrysis, if we judged ourselves rightly, which is, that is self-judgment through confession of sin, admitting, acknowledging our sin to God the Father, we should not be judged. And this is divine discipline. So James is warning these readers. This is verse 13 is a transition verse, the hinge verse, where he's moving from the uh, warning them about the need to utilize impersonal love, and he's going to continue to use this and talk about an illustration of mercy in verses 15 and 16. So he uses this to swing from the previous subject into the next transition verse. For judgment will be merciless, that is, the divine discipline, if you're out of fellowship and you're failing to respond in impersonal love and utilizing mercy, then God will not sow mercy to you in divine discipline. For divine discipline will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy, and then mercy, that is, the grace of God, triumphs over judgment. The grace of God, even though we may be taken out to the woodshed and, and we may go through incredible divine discipline as David did, God's mercy and grace is not negated by that. He, we don't lose our salvation and God's mercy then triumphs over judgment. And that brings us to the next question that James asked, which is asked not as a, as a rhetorical question, but to focus the issue. He says, What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Okay, so he then asks an important question. It's phrased in the Greek in such a way as to expect a... A negative answer. He says, can that faith save him? So he anticipates an answer to the question of no, that faith without works is not able to save him. What does that mean? Well, we can't try to somehow rationalize away and redefine it in some way that's just because we don't like it. James is really saying that faith really won't save him. He says it again in verse 17. He repeats it. He says, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. The apparent position of James is that faith minus works isn't enough. But we have to ask the question, enough for what? What does he mean by saved? And what does he mean by works? We have to break down the words. Words are very important. Words are the substance, the essence of thought. And words are not mechanical things that always mean the same thing every time you see them. Words have ranges of meaning. And they have core meanings and they have various connotations and nuances which shift with context. So we always have to look at these words. And one of the problems here is that in American evangelicalism, Whenever we see the word saved, we always think, brother, are you saved? And we think that that automatically means, are you going to go to heaven? So every time we tend to use it in everyday language and churchianity, we think it means going to heaven and being delivered from eternal condemnation. And yet, that is not the way the Scripture always uses the word sozo. The root meaning of the Greek word sozo, which... Running out of ink there. Okay, the Greek word sozo looks like this. S O 
Z-O. The root meaning is to deliver. Deliver always implies some object. It's very important to note the object in the context. Deliverance from what? Sometimes it refers to health. It's deliverance from sickness. So it means to heal in that context. In other contexts, it means uh, it's deliverance from eternal punishment. This is what we call phase one salvation. More technically, it is justification. And it is salvation from the eternal penalty of sin. Phase two salvation we also call, more technically, sanctification. And this is deliverance from the power of sin. The power of the sin nature is we take in the Word of God under the first power option of the Holy, filling of the Holy Spirit, second power option of the uh, Word of God and doctrine. We are able to, the Scripture says, put to death the deeds of the flesh. In other words, we sin less and we obey the Lord more and we rely upon Him, and we grow and advance in our spiritual life. So it's freedom from the, are saved from the power of sin. And then phase three, it's absence from the body, face to face with the Lord, technically known as glorification. But here we are saved from the presence of sin in a glorified body, and there's no more sin nature. So saved can be used in one of three ways. And just because we see the word, don't jump to the conclusion that it means saved from hell. Now, that's one of the first things we need to look at here, and we need to go to the context to define the meaning. First of all, we realize that James is addressing believers. I think in the last year that we've been studying, and yes, it's been almost a year, we have labored and labored this particular point for the very fact that when we got here, I didn't want there to be any question left in anybody's mind that yes, we are talking to believers about spiritual life doctrine and we are not talking about what it takes to enter into a relationship with God, but we, James is addressing believers. In James 1.18, James said, In the exercise of His will, that's God's will, He brought us forth, that's the doctrine of regeneration, He brought us forth by means of the word of truth, that is the gospel, a gospel hearing when you respond positive volition, and you put your faith alone in Christ alone, at that instant God the Holy Spirit creates and imparts to you a human spirit, and you are, the Bible says, born again. The word is anothen in the Greek, and it means both born from above and born a second time. He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among His creation. So obviously He is talking there that these readers are believers. Not only that, He addresses them as Fellow believers, my brethren, in this verse, 2.14, What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but he has no works? So he also uses his phrase in 12, just to put a fine point on it. He's talking to fellow believers. The subject that he is addressing in this section of the epistle began in 119, and it concerns the quality of life, that abundant life. Remember, Jesus said, I not only came to give life, but to give life abundantly. Category one, life is eternal life. Category two is the abundance of life in the spiritual life, here and now, not in the by and sweet by and by. So he addresses this in verse 19. He says, this you know, or literally in the Greek, know this, it's a command, Know this, my beloved brethren, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And that's the outline of the epistle. And the section covering the topic, quick to hear, begins in 121 and extends to 226. So very important for us to understand this context that hearing is supposed to culminate in application. What is normally translated doing, it's the Greek word poieo, and means to apply what you've heard. This is analogous to what we're going to see in this passage is faith and works. Works is analogous to application. Faith is the trust of hearing. So this we must understand 2.14 and following in the context of hearing and doing and explaining the significance of the, or the importance of applying the Word of God. Now, when we look at this verse, 
or this section, we realize that James' thrust is that application is necessary to save the soul. That's what he says back in verse 21. Therefore, prerequisite, it was a participle of attendant circumstance in the Greek, putting aside all filthiness and all the wickedness which sin is, by means of humility, that's grace orientation, receive, that is, take in the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Now, there we have to ask the question, does that mean eternal salvation, entering into a relationship with God, being saved for eternal life, or does it mean, phase two, the spiritual life? Well, the phrase, save your soul, which is sozo plus the word suke for soul, is used in Mark chapter 3, verse 4, Luke 6, 9, and Luke 9, 56, and is an idiom. It is an idiom which means to save the life. To save the life. So the issue here, the theme is, how do you want to save your life, physical life, right here in time, your temporal life? How do you want to have salvation? It's not talking about the future. It's talking about phase two. In phase two, it's talking about the quality of your life in phase two as a believer. Saving the life as opposed to death. See, the opposite covered back in James chapter 1, verse 15, was when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So the issue is, do you want to live a life as a believer where you experience temporal death or carnal death, where you're out of fellowship and under divine discipline all the time, or do you want to have a quality of life, you want to save the life, and you do that by being in fellowship under the filling of God the Holy Spirit, receiving the Word, which is able to save the life. That's the power in the spiritual life. It's clear from Scripture that throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, it is the application of doctrine that develops the capacity for life and happiness. It prolongs life. Whereas a life given over to sin develops destructive patterns of thought and action which can result in an early and untimely death, even the sin unto death, for a believer. Proverbs 10.27 says, The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Proverbs 11.19 says, He who is steadfast in righteousness, that is, production righteousness, application of truth in life, will attain to life, and he who pursues evil will bring about his own death. Proverbs 13.14 says, The teaching of the wise... That's Bible doctrine. is a fountain of life to turn aside from the snares of death. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 14.27 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. So the issue for a believer is, do you want to have real life, quality life, abundant life, or do you want to experience carnal death and destruction through the result of negative volition? So James comes here in this message to refute those who claim, apparently, that faith, that is just simple doctrinal knowledge, having a lot of gnosis, having a Bible doctrine notebook full of notes, that, faith, that knowledge, Bible doctrine knowledge minus application is all that's involved in the Christian life. In essence, James is saying what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, where Paul says, knowledge makes arrogant. You always hear some person who doesn't know a thing about the Bible come along and say, well, you guys go to that doctrinal church down there, and all you get is all this teaching all the time, and you know so much. Don't you know the Bible says that knowledge puffs up? Now, you just want to slap somebody like that, but that's not impersonal love, so we can't do that. But you can't do anything in life without knowledge. You can't apply what you don't know, and you can't know something unless you take the time, the energy, and the discipline to learn it. And we all have a lot of academic knowledge in every sphere, whatever your specialty of life is. You know a lot of things academically about that that you don't ever apply. You only apply a small percentage of what you learn academically. But you have to learn it first, academically, before you can ever apply it. And it's very important to notice the Greek of 1 Corinthians 8.1. When Paul says knowledge makes arrogant, it's gnosis there. It's not epinosis. And that's right, gnosis, because it doesn't 
come to fruition in epinosis is simply academic knowledge. And academic knowledge without going to the conclusion of applicational knowledge just makes arrogant. All of that by way of introduction, let's get into the exegesis of the text in verse 14. James asks the question, what use is it? And use is an important word in the Greek. It is the noun aphalos. Looks like this in the Greek. It's the neuter nominative singular, which means it's the subject of the verb, which is unstated in the Greek. There's no verb in the original Greek sentence, but you don't even have it italicized in the English. But it should be supplied, and it's correctly supplied. It's what use is it? Now, what is aphalos? And that's spelled O-P-H-E-L-O-S. What does aphalos mean? It pertains to that which is beneficial, that which is derived, a benefit derived from some object, event, or state. It can be translated advantage, benefit, value, purpose, and even application. Application. Now, what are we talking about in this section of James? Let's go back to the context. James is talking about application. Verse 22, but become appliers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So right away we see that James is sticking with his subject. He's not being diverted into all of a sudden now we're going to talk about salvation while we've been talking about sanctification. He sticks with his subject. The very use of the word aphalos brings to mind application. We could translate it, what applicational value is it, my brethren? What applicational value is it my brethren, and there again he emphasizes other believers, if, this is a conditional particle for a third class conditional sentence, he's simply setting up a a hypothetical situation for the purpose of discussion. What applicational value is it, my brethren, if a man or if a person says, makes the claim, that is articulates a certain claim that he has faith? What value is it? What application of value is it? He says that he has faith, but he has no work. See, he's, right away he's loading the question. It's not a, it has no application of value if there's no works. But before we get there, we have to stop and talk a little bit about this word faith. What is faith? Well, this is the Greek word pistis. P-I-S-T-I-S. And it means to trust It means to rely on. It doesn't mean to commit. It doesn't mean to give yourself to the Lord. It doesn't mean to invite Jesus into your life. It means to believe something to be true. To believe a proposition to be true. What good is it if a man says he has faith? But the interesting thing here is that it is anarthrous. I'm going to write this word up here because I know it's not one you use very frequently. This is the negative like UN and this refers to It's possession of an article. In English, we have a definite article, the, and an indefinite, a or an. There's no such thing as an indefinite article in Greek, so you, you either have an article or not, and it functions very differently from the way the article functions in English grammar. And when the article is absent from the noun, it can indicate that it's indefinite. It can indicate that it is definite. And it can also emphasize the inherent quality of the noun. Now, when the noun, we're going to get into some technical Greek here. Now, I know that this may get a little tough at times, but this is a rough passage. So I want you to pay attention because when I go into this, it's for a particular purpose. When the article is missing here, The kind of verb that we have here is an abstract concept. Faith is abstract. Chair is concrete. But faith is an abstract principle. Now, an abstract noun is inherently definite by definition. So the issue isn't a faith. It is the faith. But the word faith, pistis, can have an active connotation and a passive connotation. The active connotation would be what we call the faith rest drill. The act of trusting God. 
The passive sense is what you believe. Like we ask a person, what faith are you? Oh, I'm Episcopal, or I'm Roman Catholic, or, or I'm Buddhist, whatever. What faith are you? It is equivalent to what is a person's creed. So passive, then, refers basically to what we would call doctrine. Now, what is the meaning of faith here? Oh, there's a third option. And we'll make it the first option. The first option is that the meaning of faith here is saving faith in the sense of justification, faith alone in Christ alone. Option number two is that faith here means the faith rest drill. And option number three is that it means doctrine or what is believed. The problem is crucial to understanding what James is asking. Now, the noun pistis so far is used 16 times, or is used in the whole epistle 16 times by James, and this is the fifth time that he has used the noun. But up to this point, he has always used it with the article or with a preposition, and normally a preposition replaces the article in Greek, so it's still as if it's there. And now, all of a sudden, he changes and he drops the article with this noun, making it an arthrus, emphasizing the quality. So he's gaining our attention. Why does he drop the article? Because he's not talking about the faith rest drill anymore as he has before. He's talking about what you believe, doctrine. What good is doctrine if it's not applied? That's the question. You see... We know from the word sozo here and how he uses it that he's not talking to believers about how to be believers. Now watch this on number two. Let's go back to our diagram. Of our soul fortress. We have adversity that attacks us. Outside adversity is inevitable. Stress is optional, and we convert it to stress under the sin nature control of the soul, but we can avoid converting it to stress by erecting a fortress, soul fortress, based on doctrine, which is based on the ten stress busters, confession, filling of the Holy Spirit, faith rest drill, doctrinal orientation, grace orientation, personal sense of our eternal destiny, personal love for God the Father, impersonal or unconditional love for all mankind, inner happiness, and occupation with Christ. I've reversed these now. I guess I grabbed an older overhead. But what happens is when we hit a test of adversity, we have a choice of applying doctrine. The faith rest drill is the what? It's the application of doctrine. It is mixing faith with the promise of God. So if the, watch this. This is very crucial. If James is asking the question, and is concerned about applying doctrine, don't be a hearer, but apply doctrine. When he says, what use is it if a man has faith? Faith, if it's the faith rest drill, is applied doctrine, isn't it? You're already mixing faith with the promise of God. You're saying, God, I'm having a test here, so I'm going to cast all my care upon you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. See, faith in the sense of the faith rest drill is already the application of doctrine. So he would be redundant and nonsensical if the meaning of faith here were trusting God. Because trusting God is application of doctrine. And that's the issue. So that rules out option number two. Option number one was saving faith. He's not talking about becoming a believer. Option number two is the act of applying a promise or a doctrine by means of faith. And why would he say, what good, if a man says he has trusting faith, that is, applicational faith, working faith, but he has no works? That wouldn't make sense. So that means that he must be talking about doctrine here. Or do you have gnosis doctrine or epinosis doctrine? Is it applicational doctrine or is it just academic doctrine? Let's look at the overview of the passage and plug that word in and see how it changes our understanding of this text. What applicational value is it, my brethren, if a man says he has doctrine, but he has no application? Can that doctrine bring him to spiritual maturity? Save him. Sojo. Sanctification. 
can that doctrine have benefit to him in his spiritual life? And then he gives an illustration. This is the, from 14 to 17 is the first division of this section. He uses an illustration related to mercy and impersonal love. He says, if a brother or sister, that is another believer, is without clothing and in need of daily food. This takes us back to the beggar we talked about earlier, the poor man in chapter 2, verse 3. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, this is a legitimate need. They're being persecuted. Perhaps this is a victim of, of persecution and the government has come in and because they're a believer, taken away their house and their food and their livelihood and they've lost their job. This is not talking about the guy who's sitting down under a bridge somewhere and when you pull up at the stoplight, this happens in the big city. It doesn't happen out here. You stop at a stoplight and the guy comes out from under the bridge with his little squeegee and he starts cleaning off your windshield and he expects you to give him a couple of bucks. I'm not talking about that kind of a, of a person who's without clothing and in need. If a person or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. God will take care of your problem. We'll pray about it, brother. And yet you do not give them and it assumes you have the ability to help them out of your abundance. Go necessary for their body, what applicational value is that? You haven't implied impersonal love. Then he closes with the question again, even so doctrine, if it has no application, no works, is dead. Now, that brings us to the question, what does he mean by dead? You see the lordship crowd, and that's that third option. Lordship salvation says that, that if you don't have works, it wasn't genuine faith. That's really the essence of lordship, not the fact that they say you have to make Jesus Lord to be saved. That's part of it. But the very core of lordship salvation is this idea that there is a faith in Jesus that can save and a faith in Jesus that is not genuine. And that's not what the Scripture says. That's their mistake. But, but they say that dead faith is non-existent faith. It doesn't exist now and it never did exist. But when you see something dead, what do you automatically assume that it wants? was alive. Dead does not mean non-existence. It means no longer functioning. And there's a big difference there. Even so, faith, that is doctrine, if it has no application, is non-functional being by itself. And then he introduces the words of an objector in verse 18, but someone may well say, you have doctrine and I have works. And this is sarcasm here, and there's a lot of detail here, which we may get to this evening. But the bottom line is that this objector who gives voice to the phrase of verse 18 and 19 is saying that there's no real relationship and you can't demonstrate a relationship between faith and application. But James has a rejoinder in verse 20. He says, But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that is the objector of verse 18 and 19, that doctrine without works is useless. It has no value. He uses a different word there and it relates to value. It has no value for the spiritual life. Was not Abraham our father justified, that is, before men. We'll see why it's that way when we get there. Justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. You see that doctrine, that is, what he had learned about God, doctrine, was working with his application, and as a result of the application, his doctrine was teleao, brought to completion. That means now it has taken him further in his spiritual growth. And the Scripture was fulfilled which says, and Abraham believed God, which happened before he left Ur of the Chaldees, and it was imputed to him as righteousness. So he has moved now from simply having positional righteousness by virtue of his union with Christ to applicational righteousness as he advanced in his spiritual life. So let's go back to our verse. We've seen that when we understand faith not as saving, not as faith at the point of salvation, justification, not as the faith rest drill, but as what is believed as doctrine, we see that it fits the entire context of James. For James is talking about the issue of not being merely a hearer, accumulating doctrine as gnosis doctrine, but being a plier of the word. Here he is talking about that for that to have value in his spiritual life, it must culminate in application, which is works.
Well, verse 14 raises the question, and he gives an illustration in verse 15. But first, let's get a corrected translation of verse 14. What applicational value is it, my brethren, if someone claims to have doctrine but does not have production? Can that doctrine deliver him from the destructive and deadly consequences of sin in the life? Of course, he assumes no, because it is only through the application of doctrine that we put to death the deeds of sin. And if we continue to live in carnality, we experience carnal death. See, there are six different kinds of death in the Scripture. There's spiritual death, there's physical death, there's sexual death, there's positional death when we were identified retroactively with the death of Christ on the cross. There is carnal or temporal death, and there is the death of this, the second death of eternal judgment. So what kind of death is this when it talks about dead faith? And we must assume from the context it's talking about carnal death. And he gives this hypothetical scenario here involving a test, a people test. A test that is going to involve the utilization and application of impersonal love towards this destitute believer. And he raises this question, and this is the issue in the congregation there, that they have failed so far. They have failed to apply the royal law of impersonal love or unconditional love. So, 15 and 16 is fairly easy to understand. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, this is just a very superficial answer, yes, I understand your problem, but I'm not going to do anything about it. When And it's assumed that you can. That that has no use and no value. And so he concludes then by simply saying, what even so faith being, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Now we understand that dead means non-functional because of the comparison and analogy and synonym used in verse 20. Look down at verse 20. When James responds to the objector, he says, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. He uses the Greek word arge, which means idle. And it refers to idle workers in Matthew 23. And an idle worker is not non-existent. He's right there. He's just not working. He's not producing. So, dead faith is not non-existent faith. It is non-producing faith. The terminology continues to emphasize production. Well, when we outline the passage... We see that verses 14 through 17 raises the issue on the importance of application of faith for it to have any value. But there's always somebody who's going to come along and raise an objection. And remember the problem here is that James has people out here who are apparently saying that faith, that is just having doctrine, just knowing doctrine, is enough. You don't really have to apply it. There's no connection between them. And so we have the voice of the objector. This is a rhetorical device that is common in Greek literature. We know from certain literary clues and the way certain terms are used in other literature as well as other scriptural literature that this is a tried and true formula in the ancient world. It's called a diatribe. That's the kind of literary form that's used here is a diatribe. And one writer who has analyzed all the usages of this type of formula in Greek literature says that no case has ever been found where this type of stylistic introduction, that is, but someone may well say, that technical phrase, no place, oh, and then it's usually found followed by a rejoinder, you foolish person, that's down in verse 20, so we see it bracketed that way. No case has yet been found where this type of stylistic introduction presents the viewpoint of an ally. It always introduces an opposing or disagreeing position. Now, that's important for us to understand here. That we are going to introduce opposition. Whatever is said and whatever the meaning of these two verses is, and there's a textual problem in the middle of it, it's presenting the oppositional viewpoint. It's presenting, if James is saying application is necessary to advance, the oppositional viewpoint is, no, application is not necessary. I just need to learn it. It just needs to have doctrinal notebooks 
accumulating on my shelf. I need to be able to regurgitate what the preacher says, but I don't need to really apply anything. Now, the diatribe here is also used in some other passages in Scripture. Turn with me, hold your place here, and turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verse 19. Just to give you a parallel passage here. Romans chapter 9, verse 19 and 20. Paul starts off the same way. Someone or you will say to me then, that's introducing the words of the objector. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man? Notice how he says it. Who are you, O man? He introduces, someone will say to me, hypothetical, and then the response says, O man. Now look back. James uses the same formula, but someone may well say, and then, but are you willing to recognize, O foolish fellow? This same sort of thing is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So turn from Romans 9 to the next epistle following Romans is 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35 and 36. Paul there says, introduces the words of someone objecting to what he has just said. He said, but someone will say, that is in opposition, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? And then he says, you fool. So the words of the objector are introduced by someone or a man or a person might say, and then there is, oh man, or you fool. And that introduces Paul's response or the writer's response to the one in opposition. So James does the same thing. This is a tried and true literary device. Now I'm belaboring this because this is one of the most Difficult passages. You read all the commentaries, they also, oh, I'm not really sure, because see, the commentaries are all coming to the viewpoint that this is talking about justification, salvation, and they scratch their heads. They think works are necessary to come from faith, if it's true faith, and then they read the words of the objector and they say, well, golly, this guy seems to agree with James. I don't understand. Well, let's move on to the next verse. It doesn't fit their theology, so instead of changing their theology, they just scratch their heads and move on. But this, whatever else we may say, because of all the literature from Theophilus in his work Ad Adelicus, from Epictetus in his discourses, many others, including Plato and other ancient Greek writers, they all use this same literary formula that if they're introducing the oppositional view in order to deal with it, they all use this formula. So we have to say that whatever we say this means in verses 18 and 19, including the phrase, you believe that God is one, you do well, the demons also believe and shudder. Those are the words of the opposition. Those aren't James' words. Those are the words of the person who is disagreeing with whatever it is that James is saying. So no matter what else we say about these two verses, they have to be in disagreement with James and not in agreement with James. Well, our time's up this evening. And since we, before we really take this apart, we have to deal with the textual problem that is in the midst of verse 18. And that's going to take more than five or ten minutes. We'll have to wait two weeks before we come back and take this apart. Because remember, next Wednesday night we're going to have a question and answer time. And so that will give you something to raise questions about. But don't raise questions on this passage since we're getting ready to finish taking it apart over the next two or three weeks. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to look at Your Word and to be reminded about how important it is not simply to learn doctrine. That's just the first step in the process. But we have to learn it for the purpose of application. And it is in the application under the filling of the Holy Spirit that we advance spiritually, we grow to spiritual maturity, we handle the tests in such a way that you are glorified in the angelic conflict and that we grow and experience all that you have for us and that we experience that abundant life and develop the capacity for life that comes only through the application of doctrine. 
So, Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things we've studied. Remind us of these things in the week to come, that as we face certain tests, that we stop and think and not react emotionally. And as we think, we think in terms of doctrine. And how do we apply doctrine to this situation so that we can advance and grow, so that our faith will be of use? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.